Hear now uh, the gospel of Christ. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to, pr- to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is, is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in, in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. So throughout the the winter and the spring months, we're uh, starting a new sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. And from now uh, up until uh, the church season of Lent, we're looking at specifically the question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we're using the the Gospel of Luke, one of the four primary sources uh, about who Jesus is, uh, to give us uh, a front uh, front row seat. To the person of Jesus, the unvarnished, uh, the unfiltered account of uh, of Jesus Christ. And now, I'm not sure where you stand this morning on who Jesus is. You might be here and you just think that uh, the story of Jesus, the Gospels, are myth or legend. Uh, you might be here and you think that Jesus was just a good teacher, or a good moral philosopher. You might think uh, that Jesus is who the scriptures say that he is. So I'm not sure where exactly you fall on that continuum this morning. But one thing that I can say with some confidence is that wherever you fall uh, about who Jesus is, I think to some degree or another, uh, we all uh, live with a a picture of Jesus who is in some ways unthreatening to our lives. So for instance, if you're here and you think that Jesus is just a myth or a legend, uh, then of course he isn't a threat to, to your life because fictional stories don't make demands on how you want to live. Or if you're here and you think that Jesus was a good moral teacher or philosopher, then you can take some of the good things that he said, some of the things that that still resonate uh, and speak to uh, our world today, and you can put those things in a social media post, put those things on a coffee cup, and then just carry on with your day. Uh, But if you're also here and you think that Jesus is who the scriptures uh, make him out to be, what I would say that there's still some part of your life where even though you say you believe 
in the Jesus of the scriptures, there's some part of your life where you're functionally living as if that's not true, where you're holding Jesus at arm's length and saying, Jesus is true in this area of my life, but he's not true in, in this part of my life. And what I want to suggest this morning and throughout the, our time in Luke's gospel in this series as we look at the identity of Jesus is that if you have a picture of Jesus that is not offensive, who lines up with your vision of life, your politics, your choices and decisions on every point, then you may not have the real Jesus. And if you don't have the real Jesus, then you have no shot at becoming the kind of person that, that deep down you want to be, and even more ultimately, the kind of person that God desires you would be. And so what I want us to do over the next few weeks is, is to get a glimpse of the real Jesus uh, the Jesus uh, that Luke and the other gospel writers reveal to us, the Jesus with good teachings and hard sayings, the, the Jesus with supernatural power and divine authority, with the Jesus with mercy and indignation, the Jesus with things that, that the words that we want to underline and, and then words that we wish, we, wanna, we, we wish he didn't say or the words that we want to skip over and not underline in our Bibles. Uh, the Jesus that, that Luke presents us is actually the Jesus has the power to transform our lives. And so our journey to get to know Jesus begins in Luke chapter 4. Uh, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, uh, and Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. So the hometown hero, made good, goes into his church and preaches his first sermon. And in Luke 4, Jesus lays out his mission statement. And while there's initially a positive reception to Jesus in, in, in his word, the, the warm feelings quickly give way to opposition and rejection. And so what is it about Jesus' message that caused such a dramatic shift in his audience? Uh, I want us to consider three things together as we unpack this text. I want us to look first at what Jesus said, secondly, about how Jesus offends his audience, and then thirdly, why we need Jesus to offend us. So what Jesus said, how Jesus offended, and why we need Jesus to offend us. So let's consider first uh, what Jesus said, and this is going to be my shortest, shortest part of the sermon, because if you look at our text, Jesus' sermon was only one sentence long, and some of you are thinking, well, wouldn't that be nice? We just had one-sentence <laughs> sermons. Uh, if you go to verse 18, we see that Jesus has gone into the synagogue. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it up to what in our English Bibles is Isaiah 61. And then he reads uh, a couple of verses, and really he just reads one and a half verses, and we'll touch on that in a bit. But then he sits down, and with all eyes on him, he says, Today, this scripture that I just read is fulfilled in your hearing. And in order to understand that one-sentence that one sentence sermon, we need to understand Isaiah 61 a little bit. Uh, Isaiah was this Old Testament prophet, and in the, the latter chapters, kind of the last ten chapters of Isaiah, uh, chapters kind of 55 to 66, we get to this section of Isaiah that's called the servant of the Lord passages. The servant of the Lord was this mysterious figure, but he was this person that was promised by Isaiah to be the person who would come and make all things right. He was going to be the person who would come and establish God's kingdom on the earth and bring perfect justice and peace to the people of God. And in Isaiah's words, Isaiah 61, the servant of the Lord would bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, set free the captives, liberate the oppressed. And Jesus reads Isaiah's words, and he sits down and he says, I am he. I, I am the sermon. I am the person that Isaiah is talking about. The end. And Jesus is saying that I, I'm not here to, to start a brand new revolution. I'm actually here in, 
continuation of what God has promised to his people for thousands of years, starting with Abraham and Moses and David. I am uh, not just on their level, I'm, I've come above them to bring to fulfillment and culmination God's plan of salvation for his people. And everything that's gone wrong with the world, Jesus says, I've come to deal with it once and for all. And before we consider how this message is offensive to, to Jesus' audience, notice first that their initial response is that they actually liked the sermon. If you jump down to verse 22, it says, they all marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Uh, they're not offended by Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, although there's some people who are puzzled and, and, and perplexed by it, as you can see by maybe how that verse 22 ends with the question of, is not this Joseph's son? Uh, but, but, why, uh, but, but why is that? Why are they starting to, to, to not feel offended and then, and then gradually moving towards uh, being outraged? Well, I would suggest that their, that their religious antibodies are kicking in. Uh, their, their grid, their presuppositions about who the, the Christ is, who the Messiah is, is, is starting to fill in their minds. Uh, they're thinking, uh, we're, we're oppressed. Uh, the, the nation of Rome is crushing us into the ground. Uh, we're the poor. You know, we're being taxed and exploited out of our livelihoods. Uh, we're, we're the prisoners. We're the ones not living as we'd like. We're not on top of the social order. So we're the ones that the Messiah is coming for. He, he's the one who's going to make our lives and everything about us right again. He's going to put us on the top. And when Jesus sits down and says, I'm the Messiah, their response is, great. When do you start? When, when are things going to start becoming as they ought? But then uh, the offense comes. Jesus sees that, that the people that he's talking to aren't getting it, and the sign that they're not getting it is that they like his sermon. Uh, Jesus knows that they like my sermon, so they're not getting the message. And, and one of the things that we're going to encounter over and over again in Luke's gospel is that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, those who are in church every week and who know their Bibles, uh, whenever they hear Jesus' message for what it truly is, they're, they're always offended. They're, they're always outraged. They're always uh, angry and upset every single time. And, and if you're here this morning, and if you've never found the gospel message of Jesus to be offensive in some way, uh, offensive to, to your life, to your sensibilities, uh, it may be that you've never really heard it. And it, it may be that your religious antibodies are, are kicking in. They're, they're domesticating. They're neutralizing. They're sanding off the hard edges of the gospel into something uh, that doesn't step on your toes. But, but Jesus sees that they're not getting it. And so in verses 25 and following, Jesus breaks the spell and shows them how offensive his message is. He shows them why they should be offended. He says, you think you're the poor? You think you're the oppressed and the blind and, and those who are captives? Well, let me tell you who I'm actually talking about. Let's, let's define our terms for a moment here. And in describing who the people that Jesus was sent to, to proclaim good news to, 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 to heal, to set free, this is where the offense sinks in. In verse 22, they all marvel at him. And in verse 28, they're all filled with wrath and want to kill him. And so how does Jesus define uh, who he's sent to? Well, he gives two examples. He gives the example of the widow of Zarephath, and he gives the example of Naaman the Syrian. So who are these people in particular? Well, if you go back into the Old Testament, if you go to 1 Kings 17 for the, for the story about the widow, 2 Kings chapter 5 for the story of Naaman, you can get the full story. But uh, the gist of it is that when you read these stories, you find... Uh, that while they're not both literally poor, I mean, the widow is destitute and on the verge of uh, 
being being overrun by by creditors and everything. Naaman is actually very wealthy. He's on the top uh, of the social ladder. He's a he's a general uh, of a of a foreign nation, very well accomplished. And so, in giving us two examples, what Jesus is getting at is that. His mission is not just uh, not just for literal poor people, but they have a poverty that they both share, both Naaman and this uh, widow of Zarephath, and it's that they're spiritually impoverished. They, they have a spiritual poverty about them. When you look at the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian, they're spiritually poor. Uh, they're spiritually poor in terms of being religious outcasts, social outcasts, with Naaman being a leper. They're moral outcasts. Um, the widow and Naaman are Gentiles, which means they're they're ethnic outcasts. They're, they're outside of the chosen circle, the chosen family of God's people. And, uh, and it's these kinds of people. It's, it's the widow of Zarephath and, the, and, the, and Naaman the Syrian that Jesus says, these are the kinds of people I, I've sent to. Not, not just that, but these are the only kind of people I'm sent to. If you notice the contrast in Jesus' statement, he says, you know, there were many widows in Israel during the time of Elijah. There were many lepers in the time of Elisha, but I was but, but only the widow uh, was delivered. Only Naaman was, was the only leper who was cleansed. Jesus says the only people I've come to, to set free, to heal, to liberate, are those who know they're spiritually poor, who know that they have nothing of value to offer to God. Jesus draws a contrast between who he's speaking to and, and the people he's sent to. He, he tells his listeners, I'm the Messiah, but I've not come for people like you. Uh, and so do you start to see now the offensiveness of Jesus' message? He, can you see why they're starting to feel outraged? The Israelites think that they're the poor, they're the oppressed, they're, they're, they're the ones who, uh, who, who are on the bottom and that God owes them, and now it's our time to, to, to rise up and to assert ourselves on the top of the social order. But, uh, but Jesus comes and says it's not how it works. Salvation doesn't come to people who keep the rules, or, who, or, or salvation doesn't come to people who feel like God owes them something. Salvation comes to those who, who, abs- who know that they absolutely have no hope of salvation apart from somebody coming from the outside to, sa- to, to save them. Uh, they, salvation only comes to the people who have no hope of healing unless somebody comes from the outside and touches their blind eyes and restores their vision to them. Freedom doesn't come to those who think they're owed it, but only to those who know that they cannot free or save themselves. And so Jesus' message is offensive to his audience because he won't fit into their grid about who, about who the Messiah thinks, uh, about who they think the Messiah is, or about how they think God should act on their behalf and in their situations. They're outraged because Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah, but, but not their Messiah. Uh, not the Messiah they think they want or deserve. Um, they're confronted with a Messiah who doesn't fit their agenda, and so their response is anger outrage. Uh, they think that Jesus has committed blasphemy. They run Jesus out of town, and more than that, they, they try to run Jesus off a cliff. Uh, but Jesus escapes miraculously. We're not told how, but he, he walks through the crowd, and he leaves town. And as far as we can tell, he never comes back to Nazareth again. He never steps foot back in his hometown. So Jesus offended his hearers, uh, but he had a reason for it. So why, why did Jesus offend them? And, and kind of more to the point, why do we need Jesus to offend us? See, Jesus' offensiveness isn't reckless. He, he's not confrontational for confrontation's sake. Jesus isn't the kind of person, maybe you're this kind of friend, that just says hard things to say hard things, to be, to be controversial, um, to be out there. Jesus isn't reckless with his words. He isn't reckless with, with how and when he picks fights uh, in the Gospels. See, Jesus... Uh, 
he, he is offensive. His words wound at times, but he doesn't wound in order to, to maim. He wounds in order to mend. Jesus is offensive in the same way that a surgeon is offensive to a tumor. Uh, he doesn't wound in order to cripple people. He wounds like a surgeon holding a scalpel in order to heal, to, to mend, to make whole. And, uh, and, and Jesus picks a fight ultimately because he says uh, in, in John's gospel, in chapter 3, he says that, that God so loved the world that, that he sent me, that he, that he sent the Son into the world. So Jesus says, I'm wounding you because I love you. And, and just think about your, your earthly relationships for a moment. That it, it, it makes sense because if you have someone in your life who, uh, who never challenges you, who always affirms you, who never confronts you on, on any decision that you ever make, what you have in, in that relationship is you don't have a friend, you have an enabler. Uh, and Jesus comes to say that I'm uh, just like a surgeon, I'm not going to enable the cancer in your soul. Uh, I'm going to confront you, Jesus says, in order to heal you. And Jesus used the example of the widow of Zarephath and, and the name in the Syrian as the, as the scalpel to get under the surface of his audience. Uh, and, and he could do the same for us. And as I was digging into and studying this text, I was really helped by... Uh, by the insights of a, of a pastor in New York named David Bisgrove, and he says that uh, when, Jesus, uh, when Jesus comes to offend us, he needs to offend us for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is that uh, Jesus needs to offend us because oftentimes our agenda for God is too narrow, and then secondly, he needs to offend us because our understanding of grace is too shallow. So Jesus says that our, our agenda for God is often too narrow, and our understanding of grace is too shallow. So First, our, our agendas for our lives, for our world, for, for God and what, he, and what we think he should do in the world is, is often too narrow. It's too, it's too constrained. And Jesus was offensive to uh, his audience in Nazareth, his hometown, uh, his hometown friends and family, uh, because he didn't fit their agenda. That their expectations of who the Messiah was supposed to be, that God's Messiah was supposed to usher in the people of Israel uh, back into a period of national greatness, of, of uh, of triumph and glory, um, where, where they set the agenda for the world. But Jesus says that uh, I've not come just for the people of Israel. I've come for widows, uh, for Gentile widows, and for Syrian generals. I've come not just to uh, build up the borders of Israel, but I've come to transcend the borders, to bring the world in as well. I, I've, got global, uh, I've got global ambitions for, for the world and the salvation that, that God wants to bring to the world, Jesus says. He confronts the, the low expectations, the narrow agenda of his hearers. And the people of Israel felt like that their time was arriving, but Jesus actually challenges them and, and gives them a grave warning. He says, he says you reject me. If you, don't, if you don't receive the kingdom as one who, who is in desperate need of it, and not, not feel like you're owed it, or, or this, is, this is my time finally. He says, if you don't receive the kingdom on my terms, you're going to be cast out. You're, you're going to be rejected. You're going to walk away empty and dejected. Uh, it, and, and you reject me, and you get sent away, and I'm going to bring in the outcast. I'm going to bring in the unclean. I'm going to bring in the undeserving. I'm going to bring in the people that you think uh, uh, should get the, the brunt uh, of God's judgment in the world. I'm going to bring in those people and make them part of my kingdom instead. You see, Jesus is saying that God's plan for the world is much broader and better than your narrow expectations. Uh, that it's broader than your narrow agenda because it's a plan that includes uh, not just the people you love, but the people that you hate. 
It's the people you despise that you want nothing to do with. The unclean are in, the poor are in, but the clean are, are cast out, and they can't stand that message. They're outraged. And, and God has a different agenda for the world than we do, and when we are confronted with that truth, there's really only two ways you can respond. Uh, one way you can respond is with anger. Uh, the other way you can respond is with humility. When God's agenda confronts your agenda, when, when his plan disrupts and upends your plans, you can either uh, take offense at that, you can either feel anger and resentment, which is a response of uh, Jesus' audience in Nazareth, or you can be humble and trust that uh, while God's plan uh, for your life and for your situation is unfolding in a different way, uh, maybe even a completely opposite way than, than you hoped or planned or expected, then, then you can trust that while you don't even see the full picture or you don't know why God is doing what he's doing, uh, that you can just trust that his plan is better. You can be humble and, and trust God even though you're not quite seeing the, the full picture of things. And if you're here this morning and, and maybe you walked in here feeling a little bit of anger towards God, a little bit of resentment about the way that your life is unfolding, about the, how things are happening in you and around you, could it be that, that your anger is actually coming from, uh, from, from God's agenda, conflicting with your agenda, and, and, and being confronted that uh, I thought I was living for God, but I was really living for God so long as my plans were coming to fruition, as long as things were going the way that I hoped or expected, and now things aren't, and so now I'm angry? Could, could it be that your spiritual, that, that, that your anger and bitterness is, is actually at, it, at, at its root coming from God's, God's agenda confronting and, and overwhelming your agenda? Uh, and, and your failure uh, to let go being the CEO of your life, that God is wanting to do something broader and better, even though you can't see the full picture. And so is your, is your response this morning anger? Well, Jesus w would challenge you on, on this and say, can, can you respond to a little bit of trust, that even though you don't know why things are happening the way they're, wh why things are happening the way they're happening, that, that at some degree that uh, God says my plan is is broader and better than you can expect. So can you, can you show anger at God or, or can you trust him? You see, the life of Jesus shows that when God's, when God's agenda confronts our agenda, the default setting of the human heart isn't humility. It, it is anger. Uh, that's what we see in the story here in Luke 4, that, that the people of Nazareth, they, they try to drive Jesus out of, out of town to kill him. That, that when God's agenda disrupts our agenda, our response isn't, our natural response isn't humility. It, it's to want to kill God. And, that's event, and while they try to do it in Nazareth, uh, that's what we ultimately see happen at the end of Luke's gospel. Uh, they get their wish. Um, but, but we'll get, to, we'll, but we'll get to, to that in a moment. But not only that, but secondly, Jesus says, our understanding uh, of grace is too shallow. So not only do we have a narrow agenda, we have a shallow pool uh, of grace that we swim in. And what I mean by that is that while all of us can, can see uh, the power and the value of grace and forgiveness, um, some of us really don't see our need for it as much as we should. Um, Jesus is, is clearly offending the pride of, of his audience here because what he's saying is you're unworthy of God's salvation, but do you know who is? It's the religious outsiders. It's, it's a Gentile widow and a Syrian soldier. He, he's offending their spiritual pride, and, and the way that spiritual pride works is that it blinds us to what we really need to see, which is our own, uh, the darkness of our own hearts and our need for grace, and it moves our, our focus and our, and our gaze onto someone else that we can feel superior to. 
to say that uh, I don't need grace as much as that person. I don't need grace as much as those people that, I, you know, I, I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as them. And, and the example of Naaman shows us that our understanding of grace is proportional uh, to what our pride will allow. That our experience of grace is proportional to, to, the, to the degree which our pride in our own hearts is dismantled and taken down. If you go to 2 Kings 5 and you read the story, you see Naaman is this wealthy, accomplished general that, uh, and, and he goes to Elisha to be healed of, of leprosy, and, and he comes with all the credentials. He comes with a ton of money. He comes with a letter of recommendation from the king of Syria. Uh, he comes with uh, his Sunday best on, and, and, and he gets to the kingdom of Israel, and Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. Elisha sends a servant out um, to Naaman and says, oh yeah, you, Naaman, I, yeah, yeah, we heard you were coming. Um, no need to come any further. Just go to the Jordan River and wash seven times. And, and Naaman's response in that instance is anger. He's offended. He, he's full of rage because who does, who does Elisha think he is? Does he know who I am? If he, knew who, if he actually knew me, he would have come out and met me and paid homage to me and would have, would have been so deferential and nice. But, and, and he's about to leave the country in, in a fit of anger. He's about to just sit in his feelings and leave town, but then his servants actually talk some sense into him. He says, he says, sir, like, do you realize what's in front of you right now? He says, if, if Elisha had come to you and told you to go on some great quest to, to slay a dragon, wouldn't you have gone and done it? How much more just to go to this river, that, that muddy Jordan River, and just dip into it seven times and be healed? And, and in that moment, Naaman swallows his pride he, he puts on humility, and he goes and washes in the river, and he's healed. He, he goes on. He, he, he doesn't come to, to earn it. He, he leaves all his credentials behind. In the end, he's only healed because he receives the act of grace. He, he, says, he says no to his pride. He dies to his sense uh, of, of, being, of being owed, of being, being, his own, uh, being his own sense of accomplishment, and he embraces the humble path. He, he he accepts his spiritual poverty, and he goes and washes in the river, and he's cleansed. See, our experience of grace in our lives is proportional to the degree where we die to our own pride, where we die to our, our sense of superiority, that, that, that we think that we're, uh, uh, until you see that you're no better than anyone else, uh, you're not going to be able to experience the grace that Jesus offers. The message of Jesus is offensive, and, it, and we need it to be offensive because there's no other way for us to, to be confronted with that spiritual pride. There, there's no way for us to be confronted uh, with the, the spiritual cancer in our souls that we're living lives according to our vision, to, to our sensibilities, and it's a way that Jesus says leads to death. Uh, it's a way that, that drives us into further bondage. It's a way that, that wounds us because we're, we're just we're blind people stumbling a, around on our own, and Jesus says, I've come from the outside to set you free. I've come from the outside to bring healing and liberty, to, to, do, for your, to do for yourselves what, what you're unable to do in your own strength. See, Jesus came to set, to set us free, and we'll never be liberated from the oppression uh, of our guilt. We'll never be set free from the presence of our pride. We'll never be healed of our spiritual blindness unless we let Jesus do that work for us. And when we get to, uh, you see, Jesus came to set us free. And, and I mentioned that when Jesus got up to read Isaiah 61, he only, he only read one and a half verses. He stopped halfway through verse 2 of Isaiah 61. And it was intentional because Isaiah 61 says uh, that, that the servant of the Lord has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the line that Jesus didn't read was, 
in the day of vengeance of our God. That Jesus, that the servant of the Lord has come to, to do both to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the year of the Lord's vengeance. And Jesus, uh, in this moment, is saying, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor for you, and I've come to, to take the vengeance of the Lord upon myself. I've not come to bring vengeance, but to bear it. Now, I've not come to, uh, to, to bring judgment on you. I've come to bear judgment for you. Jesus says, I'm, I've not come this time with a sword in my hands. I've come with nails in my hands. I've come to die the death that, that you all deserve to die. And do you see what Jesus shows us? He, he, he shows us the way out of our spiritual pride. Jesus saved the world by, by giving up his power. Philippians 2 says that although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or to hold on to, but he emptied himself. He became a, a servant. He was born as a man. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Heaven's son became Joseph's son. He became a man, and, and he died uh, the death that we all deserve to die. And what was the result? Resurrection. Glory, honor, the name that was above every name. See, Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. Jesus uh, gave up his power so that we could be filled with all the fullness and the power of God. And, and Jesus says that the pattern, uh, the, way, the way up is down. Uh, the, way, the way out of your spiritual blindness is to admit your need, uh, to, to admit uh, your, 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 desperate, uh, your desperate situation, your need for help. And the only way we can do that uh, is, is to become spiritually poor, to recognize that, that we are in need of grace, that we need help and salvation, that we cannot pull ourselves out of our own spiritual darkness, out of our own, um, out of our own pride. We need Jesus to come and dismantle our pride. We need him to offend us because in, in seeing the offense, we can see the way out. You see, this is love, the Apostle John would say. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, the good news is that when you allow Jesus to offend us, uh, it's, it's only good news if it gets all the way down to our pride. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who comes to offend us, uh, but not, not in a way to uh, be reckless, uh, but, but you offend us in order to heal. Lord, would you give us that humble attitude, that humble estate where we would see our need of you and that we would lay down our lives trusting that your plan for us is far better than our plans for ourselves, uh, that, that the salvation and liberty you bring is better than any that we could create on our own. Help us, Lord, to look to you our Messiah, for all that we need. We ask this in Jesus' perfect and precious name. Amen.